We're looking at Romans 10, 1 through 13 this morning. And before we look at it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's call on him to give us understanding, to believe and to keep his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for every word that you have breathed out. We're thankful for even the difficult parts of scripture and those parts of scripture that in places are hard to understand. And so we cast ourselves on you this morning. We pray that you would give us understanding and wisdom, that you would send your spirit to instruct us, to teach us what he has breathed out in the scriptures. Father, we pray that you would give us a clearer sight of Jesus Christ. Lord, that is our greatest need, that we would see him, all of his infinite riches and grace and mercy that we have in him and the righteousness that is ours in him. Father, we ask that you would do this for your namesake and for our good and for our salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 10, beginning in verse 1, Paul now says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is for the unbelieving mass of Israelites in his day, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, in what may be arguably one of the greatest prefaces written to any book, and it may seem strange to have a preface written to the Bible, John Calvin wrote the preface to the 1550 edition of the Geneva Bible. That was, in many respects, the Bible of the Puritans. It preceded the authorized version, and it was the best-selling Bible until it was stomped out out of disdain for Protestantism. And yet John Calvin, in that preface, wrote what what are some of the most magnificent words about Christianity under the title, Christ, the end of the law. Christ. The end of the law. And I want to read to us this morning just a short excerpt out of that. Calvin says, This is in sum what we should seek in the whole scripture. It is to know well Jesus Christ and the infinite riches which are comprised in him and are by him offered to us from God his Father. For when the law and the prophets are carefully searched, there is not to be found in them one word which does not reduce and lead us to him, 
And in fact, since all the treasures of wisdom and intelligence are hid in him, there is no question of having any other end or object if we wish not as of deliberate intention to turn ourselves away from the light of truth in order to lose our way into the darkness of lies. For this reason does St. Paul rightly say in another passage that he resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I want to highlight this one line where Calvin says, For when the law and the prophets are carefully searched, there is not to be found in them one word which does not reduce and lead us to Christ. Now, Calvin is reflecting, of course, on verse 4 here in Romans chapter 10. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to, to everyone who believes. It's one of the greatest statements in Scripture. Christ is the end of the law. The law was pointing to him. It was driving to him. Every part of the law was teaching us to look to him. And Paul's going to unpack that in, in a very theological way here in verses 1 through 4 as he talks first about the righteousness of faith in the gospel. And then secondly, in verses 5 and following, he talks about the confession of faith in Christ. And he talks about belief In the Lord Jesus Christ. And so notice there first Paul is bringing us into chapter 10. He's talked all about um, the sin and depravity of all men in chapters 1 through 3. He's told us all about how justification worked in chapters 4 and 5. He's told us all about the blessing of sanctification in chapters 6 through 8. He has then told us why it is now in chapters 9 through 11. Why do some believe and others don't? And he's dealt with that glorious doctrine of election, that God has mercy on whom he will, and he hardens whom he will. And yet notice that Paul's heart, and it's the same here in chapter 10 as it was back in chapter 9, his heart is a missionary heart for the salvation of those who have rejected Jesus Christ. Paul says there in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul was not just the greatest theologian that ever lived, arguably. He was not just... He was not just an apostle who wrote the greatest scripture, arguably, in the scriptures. He was a missionary. He had a broken heart. His heart's desire was for men and women, even those who had rejected Jesus, those to whom Christ had come, those who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Paul's desire was that they may be saved. And we notice back in chapter 9 that Paul defended that desire. He says, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. I have continual grief in my heart. I could be estranged from Christ. If it were possible, I could wish that, that they would be saved. And then here in chapter 10, he explains to us and he bears witness to why they haven't been. And what's interesting about this, and you have to listen very carefully, Paul doesn't say here in chapter 10, they weren't saved because they weren't elect. You might think that. We just worked our way through chapter 9. You might say, well, isn't that what Paul said in chapter 9? But remember, Paul moves seamlessly into chapter 10. And what he says here is that they weren't saved. Notice verse 2. Because they sought, verse 3, I'm sorry, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God and they sought to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Now notice what Paul does in verse 2 as he begins to introduce the subject of the righteousness of God that comes only by faith to us. Notice what he says. First he says about the Jews that they had a zeal for God. That was one of the reasons he longed to see their salvation. There was a real zeal in the Jewish people. 
Who knew that better than Paul? Paul said that he was more zealous than his countrymen, that he was Pharisee of Pharisees, he was Hebrew of Hebrews, that he, by the law, sought to live blamelessly, that he sought to live according to all the commandments and all the ordinances of God. And, and Paul is, in one sense, commending the Jews for that. He's saying they have a zeal for God. That is zeal for the God of Abraham. And yet, notice how quickly Paul says, but that zeal was a zeal that did them no good. He says that zeal was not according to knowledge. Now, everything Paul is going to do in this chapter, everything we're going to look at, is really an unpacking of what that knowledge is. And what the apostle would have you know, and what God would have you know, is that the scriptures everywhere taught us that there is righteousness to be gained and that what fallen man needs because fallen man lost it and what fallen man in Adam needs to regain is righteousness and that that's the storyline of the Bible. Righteousness lost, righteousness regained. And yet it's a sad story as we look at the Old Testament because here are people who are always going and seeking after the regaining of that righteousness but they're doing it apart from the only one who can give them that righteousness. I want to read to you a beautiful quote by William Still on this. He says, Before the fall, obedience for Adam and Eve would have been perfectly natural under the covenant of works. But after the fall, when sin had entered into the lives of Adam and Eve, obedience was hard and never to be attained sufficiently to satisfy the perfections of God, with the result that Israel became so preoccupied with her striving to obey and fulfill the law that her whole horizon was filled with thoughts of her own struggles to attain righteousness by striving. Still says, you see, the original righteousness that God gave to Adam at creation, that Adam forfeited by his disobedience, had to be regained, and Israel proudly thought that she could regain it by striving. No, never, never. The righteousness of God was something inherent in God, and only he could give it. But you see, they were so taken up with gaining it by their own efforts that they completely forgot to ask it from God by faith. And what Paul is going to do here as he tells us about the righteousness of faith, how do we come to be righteous before God and have a right standing before God, is that it's always by faith. Paul is going to hold these things in antithesis in verses 5 and following. He's going to say that there's a righteousness based on the law. And there's a righteousness in verse 6 based on faith. He's going to hold those two things out. Now, here's what's interesting. If you have read the Bible in any sense whatsoever, you know that there are things in the Bible that sound like if you obey, you will get righteousness. There's lots in the Bible. Paul will pick a couple out here. He picks them out in Galatians. Do this and live is one of them. And so does the Bible teach that there is righteousness by obedience? Yes. And yet the problem is we don't obey. And that was Paul's point in Romans 1 through 3, that all are under sin, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that there's no one who does good, no, not one, that their throats are an open tomb, their tongues are the tongues of vipers, from head to toe we are corrupt, We are dead in sins and trespasses by nature. We are under God's wrath and curse. That is the great problem that Paul sets out, and the answer is not obey. And yet Israel, notice what Paul says. He says in verse 3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God 
and seeking to establish their own. So Israel understood that righteousness had been lost, righteousness needed to be regained. Here God gave his commandments. He promised life if there was obedience. And yet they couldn't obey, yet they didn't acknowledge that, and they sought to obey, and they sought to establish their own righteousness, Paul says. There was an interesting section in one of Jonathan Edwards' sermons where after the Great Awakening, he noticed how many of the congregants and people in the town had been puffed up with self-righteousness. And he said, it amazes me, and this is a horrible paraphrase, but he says, it amazes me how Christians think that they are liable to fall into any sin, but they think they've been cured of all their self-righteousness. Somehow, a Christian will admit, I still have indwelling sin, I can fall into any sin whatsoever, but I've been cured of all my self-righteousness. And we need to hear this. And we need to hear Paul saying to us this morning that if we are seeking to establish our own righteousness, if we're seeking to trust in what we're doing, if we're seeking after eternal life by what we're doing, and we are trusting in that, that we are like the Jews, we become ignorant of the righteousness of God, we have lost the true knowledge of the scriptures, and we fail to realize that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, this is not easy, because on the one hand, Moses does say, do this and live, and Jesus says, do this and live. I want to make it clear this morning. Sinclair Ferguson says, Moses says, do this and live, but of course Moses knows nobody can do it and live. And not just Moses, but the Lord Jesus says, do this and live, but Jesus knows the rich young ruler can't do it either. Ferguson says, because of course, since the fall, righteousness, holiness, godliness, faithfulness, obedience has never been energized by the unregenerate human heart, but only by the saving grace of God in the gospel. And so you can see how Paul is driving and he's saying, yes, yes, while the law required works, while God required righteousness, while nobody unrighteous will ever stand in his sight, that he will cast all uncleanness and unholiness away from him forever, it is not by what you do that you are accepted before God, that you become righteous before God. And Paul would say now in verse 4 in this magnificent statement, because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now, Paul is not saying Jesus does away with the law of God, the Ten Commandments. He is not saying you are not called to obey in Jesus Christ. But Paul is also not saying, and you've got to listen very carefully, he is not saying Jesus enables you to keep the law so that you'll be saved and justified on the last day. He's not saying that. When he says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, he is not saying, as our Roman Catholic friends may believe, and other sects and groups of Christianity, that Jesus enables you, by his Holy Spirit, to gain the righteousness that you will then personally be judged on the basis of for eternal justification or salvation. What Paul is saying is that the righteousness from God is a righteousness that God alone possesses. God alone possesses it. He came in the person of Jesus. He fulfilled all the demands of the covenant of works. He put himself under the law that he might redeem us from the curse of the law. He came to fulfill all righteousness. He lived a perfect, sinless, 
holy, harmless, undefiled life from infancy to adulthood. There's this beautiful thought in Irenaeus where he's talking about Jesus living every stage of a person's life. He became an infant to redeem infants. He became a child to redeem children. He became a man to redeem men. That he lived that perfect life at every stage of human experience so that he might become the righteousness that his people need, that he might then give them a perfect record of righteousness. And Paul is eager to explain this, and so he goes on. Notice verse 5. He says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. There is a righteousness that's based on the law. If someone could keep the law, if they could keep it, In all of its perfection, they would get a status of righteous before God. If you could keep the law in all of its perfections, you would be seen as righteous before God. And yet the demands of the law are thrown out the window in churches that don't teach what Paul is saying here. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones has this really helpful statement where he says... um, any teaching about salvation that doesn't put it in terms of how the law of God has been satisfied and by what the law of God demands is false teaching. I'll re-say that. Any teaching about salvation that doesn't put it in terms of what the law of God demands and how it's been satisfied is false teaching. Now, there are some of you that maybe have never heard this before, and there are lots of churches that will never preach this, I think Calvin named the 1550 preface to the Geneva Bible, Christ, the end of the law, because he so understood and he so cherished what was being said here. Notice that he says, the law has been given for this end to lead us by the hand to another righteousness. So there is a righteousness, Paul says, that's in the law. And that that righteousness, notice verse 5, the person who does the commandment shall live by them. And then notice what Paul says, but, but... The righteousness based on faith speaks in this manner. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, who will descend into the abyss. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, Paul wants you to understand that the whole of the Christian life is lived by faith in Jesus Christ. That it's not that if you do good enough, you will one day be given faith and then you will be given righteousness. He says that there is a righteousness according to the law. If you do them, you'll live in them. And there is a righteousness that is by faith. And it is the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus embodied perfect righteousness, not for himself. I want you to think about this. Some people think of Jesus merely as a good example or even preeminently as a good example. And and here's the reality. Jesus Christ didn't have to step foot on this earth. The Lord Jesus didn't have to breathe one breath of air. He certainly didn't have to be born in the, in the Virgin Mary. He didn't have to become the smallest, most helpless form of life ex- that could ever be experienced. Jesus didn't have to come here to live a perfect life to be an example for you preeminently. The law of God set out perfectly what God required. God did not come in Jesus Christ to embody righteousness to say, here's how you do it. That is not, that is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that Christ so embodies 
the righteousness of God, it becomes the source of righteousness for you who are united to him by faith. So that if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, if you are in union with Jesus, everything that's true of him is now true of you. You, you get all the righteousness that he merited. Now, I've heard quite a number of my favorite theologians say, and, and I believe this, this is the hardest thing in the world to believe. And you know why it's the hardest thing in the world to believe and how I know it is? Because generation after generation after generation after generation of Israelites didn't believe it. They hardened their heart in Pharisaic self-righteousness. They sought to establish their own righteousness. They would not come off of their own righteousness. Charles Spurgeon has a sermon on Zacchaeus. And I love the phrase where he says, Yonder, elderly lady, you've perched yourself in a branch of your own supposed righteousness. Come down to the Savior. Come down to the Savior. It doesn't matter if you're four years old or if you are 84 years old. This is God's word to us that there's a righteousness of faith. It is received only by faith. It is only in Jesus Christ. It is not by our attempt to keep the law. Now, think about this. If it were, if God were saying it is by keeping the law, it's by trying to do good enough, to quiet your conscience with good works, to give enough, to sacrifice enough, to serve enough, to try to atone for your own conscience in that way, and to make up for your sins, then God would have given the law immediately upon the fall, but he didn't. And Paul's point, and this is very important, Paul's point in Galatians chapter 3 is that the law came 430 years after the promise given to Abraham. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now there are multitudes of people that don't believe this and I guarantee you that if they consciously do not believe what you're hearing, they have no assurance in their souls of their salvation. That's the implication The implication of this is, if you want to know that you have eternal life, you need to be resting in the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There's a phenomenal story about Queen Victoria, and she had asked asked one of George Mueller's friends, John Townsend, can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? And Townsend said to her in in this now memorable statement, I believe in the finished work of Christ for me. So Queen Victoria said, can I be sure? Can I be sure? Absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety. And John Townsend said, I believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ for me. That's what God wants for you. He wants you to be able to say this morning, I believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ for me. Not what about them, what about these people over here, what about this church over here, what about this? But every ear that hears this this morning, starting with mine, must say, am I resting in Jesus Christ? Am I seeking the righteousness of God by faith alone? Do I realize that I've received that righteousness in Jesus? Am I resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone? And you know, it's one of the the reasons I think the Puritans gave us that beautiful statement about what is saving faith. In, in the standards that it's, it's a receiving and a resting on Christ alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the Gospels. It's one of the most beautiful statements in our, in our catechism. Saving faith is a receiving and resting in Jesus Christ alone 
as he is offered to us in the Gospels. Well, notice that Paul has gone to prove this further out of the book of Deuteronomy there in verse 6. And what Paul has essentially said here is that the law always taught these things. It always taught this. The problem was not Paul's reading of Moses because Moses himself taught that the law he was giving was unable to be kept by the people he was giving it to and that they would need a savior. That was the point. That Paul was saying that. Paul said that God demanded obedience and that if someone could keep it, they would get life. But then in the same, in the same turn, in the same book in which he says these things, he says, don't say who will ascend up to heaven. And Paul understands that as saying to get Christ to come down here. Who's going to descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead? What Paul is saying is, it's not so much what you do, it's what you believe about what God has done for you. Paul is saying, it's what you believe about what God has said about Christ coming down and descending and dying and being buried and then ascending and then pouring his spirit out, coming down again on his church and uniting his people to Christ. And it's beautiful that Paul sees the intention of that, even in Deuteronomy, when he quotes Deuteronomy 30, he sees that God is always calling his people to see what is God going to do to give us the righteousness that he requires and that his law demands and that we can't attain. Moses saw that. The prophet saw it. Jeremiah called the coming redeemer, the Lord, our righteousness. The psalmist would often say, I have no righteousness except in you. You are my righteousness. And Paul is saying Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We'll notice secondly and very quickly, Paul moves into a teaching on the confession of that. There are lots of people that hear these things. There are lots of people that learn all about Christianity. They learn about world religions. There are people who could tell me exactly what I'm telling you right now, but they do not profess faith in Jesus Christ. I had an example where I was doing uh, boardwalk evangelism years ago, and I spent hours and hours with a Boston College philosophy student and debating these things. And I would say, now, what did I just tell you? And he'd tell me back what I said. I'd say, what did I tell you about Jesus? He'd tell me back. And, and then at the end of the night, he finally looked at me and he said, look, if I told you I was trusting in Jesus, I would be lying to you. And I said, I do not want you to lie to me. I want you to trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying that you know that someone is trusting in Jesus because they confess Jesus. Notice verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so, so how do we know that someone is righteous before God? How do we know that someone has grasped what Paul is saying, because they, they confess the Lord Jesus. They make him known. They confess that he is their Lord and their Savior. They confess to the watching world. It's one of the most faith-building things for me when I see someone who I'm close to, and I'm out with them, and they're witnessing. And initially, it makes me feel bad because I'm not witnessing. And then I think about it for days on end, and it builds my faith, and it encourages me to be bolder in my witness. And I've said this to you in the past. I believe the reason we do not witness to people, we do not confess the Lord Jesus more, is because we're not actively coming to him, communing with him, feeding on him, and trusting him as we should. 
I feel this in my own life. The Christian life is not, I got this, now I'm good. If it was, you sitting here every Sunday is pointless. You wouldn't need this. The Christian life is up and down. Um, Think of Simon Peter. He spends three years with Jesus, and then he denies Jesus to a slave girl. Not just to a little girl, but a slave. We so fear man. We so get consumed with our own lives and comforts that we're failing to see that what God wants for you is to trust in Jesus Christ, to confess him with your mouth. It's beautiful to me that Paul is writing these things in the context of saying, my heart's desire for Israel is that they may be saved, that there's, there's a whole evangelistic sphere around everything Paul's saying in Romans 9 to 11, and that God has appointed his people to confess the Lord Jesus as a witness to the church and to the watching world. Um, this is not a matter of intellect. There's a lot of smart people that don't get this. A lot of very intelligent people that don't get this. And so Paul finally, notice what he says. He then, thirdly, he talks about belief in Christ and belief from the heart for this righteousness. Notice, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, if you believe with your heart. I've told you often that when I was unregenerate, I would tell everyone, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, and my life looked nothing like the life of a Christian. And in my heart, as I look back, in my heart, I knew, I knew I was a liar. I knew that I didn't believe in my heart. I knew that Christ wasn't dwelling in me. I knew that I was not abiding in Jesus Christ. I knew that my confession and the state of my heart were not right. Now, the Puritans would talk about the heart that's been deceived being the hardest thing in the world to convince it's been deceived. And so I think God calls us to examine ourselves and to say, do I really believe on the Lord Jesus? Do I believe that God has raised him from the dead? Do I believe that he died for my sins As Townsend said, do I believe that he finished the work of redemption for me? Do I believe that God provided righteousness for me and that he raised him up to prove that he had finished the work of redemption and that righteousness was established and that a new heavens and a new earth awaits us and that I have been brought into a world of grace through the resurrection of Jesus, that I have been raised up with him, I've been made a new creature with him, that I'm now united with Jesus sitting on the throne of God, positioned in the heavenly places in Christ. This is Paul's burden time and time and time again. And Paul now takes it right to the heart. Robert Burns, in one of his more understandable quotes, said, the heart is always the part that makes us right or wrong. The heart is always the part that makes us right or wrong. He's not saying... As long as you're sincere in your desire to do good, you're okay. Because Paul said that would be seeking to establish your own righteousness. The heart is always the part that makes us right or wrong. I want to ask you this morning, first, if you have 
come off of your own righteousness as you think through your motives, as you think through how you try to gain assurance in your own heart? Are you, are you seeking to quiet a guilty conscience by doing more? One of the scary things in the Bible is John the Baptist preached repentance and faith, and it says Herod heard him gladly and did many things. So John said, repent and believe. And what did Herod do? He didn't repent and believe. He did many things. So he went out and he tried to do more to quiet his conscience in response to repent and believe. And so um, I want to ask you, as you think through your own life, as you examine your heart, are you, are you one who is trusting Jesus Christ for righteousness? Are you... Are you acknowledging that God alone has righteousness, that you have no righteousness? It's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who hungers and thirst? People that don't have any. You don't hunger and thirst when you have food. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst. They want it. They're seeking it. They don't have it, but they're seeking it in God. And and Jesus says they will be filled passively from outside of themselves. They will be given righteousness as they go to God in faith and repentance. And so I challenge you to be examining your heart on that. I would also be encouraging you. Are you you one who has or are confessing your faith? Is that a part of your life? We all struggle with fear of man. I'm not asking if you do it perfectly. I'm not asking if you feel guilty when you fail to do it. I'm asking, do you confess Jesus as the Lord of your life? Do you say unashamedly, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is my Lord. He is my righteousness. He is my king. He is my prophet. He is my savior. And then finally, Paul says, if you believe in your heart. And so all of these things are necessary to be saved. I'll just leave you with this thought. I I think this is one of the most beautiful things in the whole Bible. Notice how Paul ended chapter 9. We talked about this last week. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, will never be put to shame. We said Jeffrey Dahmer, if he believed in Jesus Christ, and I think he did, will never be put to shame. I think that's beautiful. I think that magnifies the grace of God in the gospel. If Jeffrey Dahmer believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not be put to shame. And it's as if Paul is so caught up with that idea, notice, that he picks back up on it in verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul wants you to get that. He doesn't say he who does enough will never be put to shame. He doesn't say he who strives hard enough and has enough good works will never be put to shame. He says, he who believes in Christ, simple faith, childlike faith, whoever believes on him will never be put to shame. This ends the reading and preaching of God's holy word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we find it hard to believe your goodness to us who are such great sinners. We find it hard to believe the greatness of your grace that abounds, we're sinned abound, and the righteousness that you give us in Jesus Christ, that we are clothed in his righteousness, that we are covered, that we are justified, that we 
have a right standing with you and that you are even now conforming us to the image of your son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have done everything that we needed done. We thank you for your atoning work on the cross. We thank you for your perfect life. We thank you that you have been raised from the dead and that you're even now sitting at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, and and that you will come again and that you will bring the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. We pray that you would hasten that day and that while we wait and watch, that we would live and walk by faith in you. We pray that you would give us grace to confess boldly, that we trust in you and you alone, and that we would be believing in our hearts every single day of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.